0: Rise and let us go from here. Not you guys. Those were Jesus' words to his disciples before leaving the upper room. A coup was underway. Where would they go? Well, John tells us when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered And there on the Mount of Olives, with loud cries and tears, Jesus would pray through the night. God's king rejected in God's city, outside God's city. Well, what must this have been like for the king? What must Jesus have felt? Please open with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15. One way to enter into the experience of Jesus in this moment is to meditate on the gospel accounts, each of which records this move out of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. Another way is to enter the experience of Jesus is to read 2 Samuel chapter 15, which we will in a moment. Jesus' life was, in its pattern and in many specifics, a rehearsal of David's life. David, by way of comparison and contrast, a projection of Jesus. So that when Jesus said, rise, let us go from here, he was virtually quoting David's same words in virtually the same place in very similar circumstances nearly a thousand years before. 2 Samuel 15, in it we find the story of a coup, the forced supplanting of one kingdom by an alternate and opposing kingdom. Let's read 2 Samuel 15. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And he would say, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel. Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right. But there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. And every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men Of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Gesher in Aram, saying, if the Lord will bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. Hebron. <clears throat> with Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from the city of Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left 10 concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, "'Why do you also go with us? "'Go back and stay with the king.' For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your house. You came only yesterday and shall I today make you wander about with us since I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God, and they sat down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark back to Jerusalem and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. David said, "O oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in times past. So now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Ahithophel the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Well, this morning's sermon, mirroring this morning's text, we have a movement up and we have a movement out. We have a movement up as Absalom rises in the poles and in power. And we have a movement out as David leaves his city tragically and with tears. First, a movement up, a prince's conspiracy, verses one through 12. These were hard times for the people of Jerusalem. It all goes back to David's failure in sexual sin when he took Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, her husband, to cover his tracks and preserve his rule. And this stain of sex and violence on David's life marks the lives of his son. In fact, God promised as much that neither the sword nor sexual violence would depart from David's home. The name of the city Jerusalem comes from the word peace, as we've learned. But violence, not peace, was a better name for David's city in these days. Weeping instead of sorrow was its sound. Sorry, weeping instead of rejoicing was its sound. Absalom, the chief actor in this first movement in the chapter, is David's son. David's tall and handsome son. A description intentionally recalling to mind the description of Saul before David. He's the son who was exiled from Jerusalem for violently killing his brother Amnon. Amnon who violently raped their sister Tamar. And in the story of Amnon's murder, we learn a few things about Absalom. He's clever and he's careful. He plotted patiently for two years for the right moment to take his brother's life involving many others in the process and deceiving even his father when chapter 15 opens up Absalom is back in Jerusalem recently restored to David albeit awkwardly and that restoration does speak to David's benevolence our chapter ends with Absalom riding into Jerusalem to take it over So how did he do it? How does a formerly exiled murderer take over the nation? Very carefully, we might say. How else? So imagine the scene with me. Imagine what the people were saying. Look at his chariot. Verse 1. Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Chariots didn't belong in Jerusalem, by the way. In the first place, Israel's kings were warned against trusting in the chariot. The kings of the nations did so, but Israel would not have a king like the nations, and her power would not be like the power of the nations. And either way, a chariot was about as practically ridiculous in Jerusalem as it would be down Osuna Road right out here. The region around Jerusalem was hilly and rocky and useless for these vehicles, except for its rider to make an impression. And that's exactly what Absalom was doing. With this chariot and these horses and these 50 runners about him, Absalom is crafting an image of royalty. A strong personal brand that connects with the people. A brand that resonates with the human lust and love and attraction to power. It's hard for us to imagine the impression that a chariot might have made on the average person in Jerusalem. If you've ever seen a presidential motorcade, you may have something of an impression of the awe that it can inspire. A team goes before the president by days to prepare the space. And when the president makes his way down in that car that you could not destroy, he is flanked and surrounded by men and machines. On every side. Even more so would be the parade of military assets of the kind you'll see in countries attempting to portray their strength to the people within their borders and abroad. Absalom was projecting the power of a king, but of course it was a facade. For while this was the kind of power the people wanted to see, it was not the kind of power that saves them or that provides for their safety. Look at his chariot, they'd say, as he crafted his image. He was overt in his projection of power, but he was subtle in almost every other way. Listen to his promises, they would say, verses two through four. Absalom would get up early and stand by the gate. He was a driven man, a hard worker, getting in front of real people. And he made sure he was at the gate because it was at the gate that men with disputes between one another would come for justice from the king. Now, David had become known for his just handling of the matters between tribes. In the chapter just before, he was approached directly and freely by a woman from Tekoa with her grievance. This was David's way in a fruit of his work in dealing justly with the tribes. But Absalom as well saw the importance of the gate. And so the gate is, his, is a cornerstone in his communication strategy. It's at the gate that Absalom communicates his message. First, he manufactures a problem. He lied about David's handling of the claims between the tribes. And about David's motives and intents. He created a perception of sinister neglect on the part of his opponent. Absalom invented injustice in order to offer himself as the solution Oh, that I were judge in the land, that every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Your claims are good and right, he would tell every person at the gate. Exactly what an aggrieved, aggrieved person wants to hear, and exactly impossible. For how can every aggrieved person and every aggrieved party be right? But of course, it doesn't matter at all what matters is that he's winning their allegiance and they're hearing what they want to hear Absalom is shrewdly has shrewdly aligned his message to resonate with the people now it may be that David was clumsy in his administration of his kingly duties we don't know exactly David is not in his prime here but it was not true that he was unjustly rejecting cases that, what is clear and true is that Absalom is exploiting and overblowing whatever weakness there may be in his opponent. And he is exploiting divisions among the people to serve his own unstated purposes. He projected the justice of a king. But really, it was flattery and it was cruelty. Listen to his promises of justice, they would say. He sure sounds like our king. Oh yes, and feel his concern. Verse five, men are coming to Absalom to pay homage to him. They're bowing to him. His image crafting and messaging have combined to create a sense of kingly legitimacy. They're treating him like a king. But Absalom is a master of controlling the perception of the people. If a man comes to Absalom to pay homage, he takes him by the arm and kisses him. Saying, in effect, I'm with you, brother. It's creating an ethos. This is what the king was supposed to feel like, the common man. Look at him kiss that baby. Just look at him kiss that baby. Watch him hunt. He loves us. He's with us. He's one of us. He's the people's king. He was projecting the warmth of a king. But, of course, it was merely a manipulation and calculated manipulation of symbols. And so we're told Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Feel his concern they'd say, he feels like our king. He didn't earn their allegiance, he stole their allegiance. For four years this kind of things goes on. He's plotting and he's patient he has a long view here looking for the right moment. And when the groundwork is laid and at just the right time, he makes his move. And his move comes in three steps. He charts his path to victory, verses 7 through 9. This invokes a, he invokes a strategic cover of piety before David. He requests to return to Hebron to fulfill a vow he says he made to the Lord. That if the Lord brought him back to Jerusalem, he'd go there and worship him. He's projected a kind of godliness. He's been leveraging that spiritual capital with the people. And now he's leveraging that spiritual capital with David. His victory path also includes important symbol. Absalom would go to Hebron. Which is much more than the place where he was born. It was the place where David himself, the king, was anointed. And where David set up his rule before moving into Jerusalem. It charts his path. He galvanizes his base, verse 10. He calls those who are with him throughout the tribes to action, to do good on their allegiance, to shout, Absalom is king at the sound of a trumpet. Treason, but they're with him to do it. And finally, he capitalizes on his momentum, verses 11 through 12. He invites 200 men of Judah to join him in Hebron to feast, likely prominent men of the town. And they didn't know anything of the scheme, which is impressive that Absalom was able to to win Those who would commit treason with him from throughout the tribes, so bold. While at the same time keeping the whole thing quiet from those he didn't want to know of his scheme. The word is crafty. The combination of the shout from the tribes... With Absalom, at that time, surrounded by 200 good men, would have the force of sealing Absalom's inevitability in the mind of anyone who caught wind of it. With this momentum, Absalom reached out to David's trusted counselor, Ahithophel, and makes an alliance. This counselor has a history with David. He was also Bathsheba's granddaddy. Easy pickings at the right time. And when he folded, it was done. David was betrayed by one from his inner circle. And so David wrote in Psalm 41, 9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Curious. This is how Jesus would speak of Judas so many years later. And so this movement closes by calling it what it is. Verse 12. And the conspiracy grew strong. And the people with Absalom kept increasing. Let's pause for a moment and reflect on the entailments of what we've just witnessed. There are entailments. If this was a new story to you, perhaps you nevertheless found it eerily familiar It's almost like the playbook for a modern political ascendancy. But of course it's not. There are just powers, patterns to power and how power moves in a world itself powered by pride. Without the restraint of real righteousness. Heading into an election season we may feel that the best sphere of application for all this is the public sphere. And we should certainly have a heightened sensitivity to how power can move when the people are asleep, how it's corrupted, and how it preys on people. And we should have a heightened reflex against rewarding this kind of manipulation and for praising just dealings wherever they're found. And we should have a heightened annoyance at the suggestion that the private and public lives of public servants are two separate things. We should have a heightened suspicion of the projections of piety that we hear. Honest expressions of religious conviction are to be commended and approved. But we should not be blindly led. We should have a heightened appreciation for the logic of freedoms like the freedom of press and the freedom of speech. Which function basically in part to keep the light on the actions of leaders so they don't get easily, so we don't get easily duped keeping honesty and honest dealings in everyone's best interests. So the free and even obnoxious noise of the media is the sound of safety, a dam that holds back, albeit imperfectly, the powerful current of sin. And we should have a heightened diligence in prayer, perhaps especially in this, for those serving in public office, given the pressures and temptations that they face. And especially for those Christians who serve in public office as their vocation. With the pressures and the unique temptations that they face. But though it is not irrelevant to the public sphere, since Israel was a national entity, the public sphere is not the main sphere of application for what we've witnessed here. Not hardly. It's right here in this room, actually. It's the church. It's not the political sphere. It's the spiritual sphere. If we had a different approach to preaching, dare I say, I may have titled this sermon The Anatomy of a Church Split. If the promised conflict outlined in Genesis 3.15 really does set the Bible's story in motion, then we should not be surprised when David is attacked by so crafty a foe, or when Satan enters Judas to betray Jesus. Before Jesus said, let's get out of here, he spoke of the ruler of this world coming after him. And we shouldn't be surprised when Satan captures people, as Paul says, in the church to do his will, while making them think that they're serving God. Gossip and slander and quarrels and other such nonsense are his tools. Here's some advice from Ray Ortland, a pastor who knows a thing about, or two, about coups in the church. Here's his article, How to Wreck Your Church in Three Weeks. I'm going to read it. It's too good. Week one, walk into the church today and think about how long you've been a member. How much you've sacrificed how underappreciated you are. Take note of every way you're dissatisfied with your church now. Take note of every person who displeases you. Meet for coffee this week with another member and share your heart. Discuss how your church is changing, how you've been left out and others have been left out. Ask your friend who else in the church has concerns. Agree together that you must pray about it. Week two, send an email to a few other concerned members. Inform them that there's a groundswell of grievance that is surfacing in the church. Problems have gone unaddressed for too long, but ask them to keep the matter discreet for the sake of the body. And as complaints come in, form them into a petition to demand an accounting from the leaders of the church. Circulate the petition quietly. Gathering support will be easy. Even happy members can be used if you appeal to their sense of fairness that your side deserves a hearing. Be sure to proceed in a way that conforms to your church constitution so that your petition is procedurally correct. That's week two, now week three. When the growing moral fervor, ill-defined but powerful, reaches critical mass, (laughs) confront the elders with your demands. Inform them of all the woundedness in the church, which leaves you with no choice but to put your petition forward. Inform them that, for the sake of reconciliation, the concerns of the body must be satisfied. Whatever happens from this point on, you've won. You have changed the subject in your church from gospel advance to your own grievances. To some degree, you will get your way. Your church will need three or four years for recovery. But at any future time, you can do it again. It only takes three weeks. Just one question, he closes with Paul's words. Even if you are being wronged, why not rather suffer? It's a good word. hope I don't experience what he's experienced to have the wisdom to write that. Just assume, read it. I have, though, personally watched this kind of thing happen to a degree or another from a distance five times, I counted. The chariot. Is a person's history at the church, broad connections, smooth words, impressive explanatory insight and compelling confidence, even roles. The gate is the church parking lot where all kinds of things are easier to say and easier to believe. The lies Absalom tells are the false narratives that give people a filter to hear all kinds of motives behind the most innocent of comments encounters of the leader. It's the kind of narrative that can unify diverse grievances into a single package. It's the kind of narrative that can turn this kind of straightforward preaching into a perceived power play, which it's not. I sent a text to a friend. I said, hey, you should preach 2 Samuel 15 this week and see how that goes. (laughs) The cover of piety is the, Bible's, is the Bible study a man or a woman leads or the prayers they pray in the midst of their movements. And the 200 innocents invited to join Absalom are the invite to a list of, for an informal meeting off-site with key people excluded. People unknowingly made accomplices, but who end up in the sweep of the movement and momentum siding with the faction. I should say that I have no person, single person in mind in our congregation this morning, I have every single person in our congregation in mind. Of course, that needs qualification. The church is different than Israel. Absalom was not a Christian, he didn't know the Lord. He wasn't a true Jew, even though he was in the old covenant and even a son of David. But the church, the church is made up of those who know the Lord, who have the Spirit, who have the law written on their hearts. We're not the same thing with the same vulnerabilities. And that's why the church's process into and out of membership and into and out of leadership are more important than the church's music or children's ministry. There's a lot about the former in the Bible, not a lot about, really any, some of it, the latter. Regenerate church membership and biblically qualified leadership will make the difference between heaven and hell in your church experience. It's an undervalued priority in looking for a church. So brothers and sisters, beware of false teachers and your tendency to fall for them. As Paul says, for a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And brothers and sisters, Beware of those who love to be first and our tendency to follow those who love to be first. Remember what John wrote about in John, 3 John, Diotrephes, who loves to put himself first, who does not acknowledge our authority, talking wicked nonsense against us, lying to prop himself up. Remember Paul's words to Titus, preparing him for church work. Avoid foolish controversies, Titus, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. But pray for them still, as Paul says in 2 Timothy, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. We can lose our senses feeding on the satanic drugs of false assumptions and story. It's easy to see on the pages of the Bible in the story of Absalom, but the people were duped It's hard to spot when it's in front of you, when it's in plain view. It cloaks itself in godliness. I've been playing chess with my kids lately and they can't stay, they can't imagine a step ahead. and Sometimes I can't imagine a step ahead, which is why they get me and don't even know they're getting me. I swore I told Carson he wouldn't defeat me until he was a teenager, but he could keep trying and it would be a lesson in uh, taking defeat. I think we were three games in about a year ago. He beats me. I think I helped him with one move, but I mean, I was trying, and my seven-year-old beat me in chess. Careful that you don't become a pawn in someone else's game. Careful that for being asleep and not thinking a few steps ahead and watching, staying alert, that you don't find yourself in checkmate. Consider how strong are the New Testament's words against division and how great the damage is from divisiveness in God's church. Look out for how you are like Absalom and look out for how you love an Absalom. Whose kingdom are you on? Whose power thrills you? It's hard to detect and that's why it's called a conspiracy. Back to the story. We've seen a movement up, and now we'll see a movement out. A movement out, a king's flight, verses 13 through 37. If Absalom's movement up was characterized by growing strength, then David's movement out was characterized by growing sadness. A messenger, probably a man from the party at Hebron, came to David. Verse 13, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And the rest of the chapter is David's flight from Jerusalem. Notice the speed. David fled at once. Verses 13 through 17. We'll read verse 14. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. David has been a quiet in this account so far, really too quiet. He took no action against Absalom's proud parades. He took no action against Absalom's lies at the gate. He has been aloof and he has not been as wise as he should have been. For four years, the cancer spread. But David is not stupid in this moment. When he hears the message, he was not confused about what it meant. Well, everyone likes Absalom. He didn't seek to verify the message or get a second opinion. He said, only arise and let us flee. He knew a thing or two about a coup and what happens when kings are displaced. And notice the direction. David fled to the east. Verses 18 through 23. Look at verse 23. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron. And all the people passed on toward the wilderness. Toward the wilderness. The east in scripture in circumstances like this is symbolic for a movement away from the presence of God. East of Eden. Into the wilderness. Into exile. David stopped at the last house out of town while hundreds and hundreds passed by him. He does try to talk one of them out of it with their people. Listen to how he speaks here. Listen to the king verse 19 when the king said to Ittai the Gittite <clears throat> why do you also go with us go back and stay with the king for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home you can only you came only yesterday and I, how shall i today make you wander about with us since i go i know not where go back and take your brothers with you and the lord may show steadfast love and faithfulness to you but Ittai answered the king as the lord lives And as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for life or for death, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, go then, pass on. No, David is not at his best in chapter 15, but neither is David at his worst. There is the mention of the Lord here and the consideration of the Lord's hand in the matter. And those who are depending on the Lord are swearing their allegiance to David, whom they trust. We're seeing here a kind of return of the David we've loved across the table from Mephibosheth. A king who brings justice. A departure. This departure is a massive operation involving hundreds of people on their way to nowhere. And David is addressing a single man with his people, with his concern. In a just way. Notice the speed, the direction, the posture. He fled humbly. Verses 24 through 29, at news of Absalom's coup, David is a very different man than he was at news of Bathsheba's pregnancy. At the news of that sin and how it had borne the fruit of a pregnancy, he did whatever he needed to do, including violence, to defend his rule. He resorted to murder to save face. And preserve power. The Lord was not in the mind or on the lips of David in those days. But he is now. And perhaps the Lord's chastisement is having its way with David. Zadok and the priests brought the ark with them out of the city. But David instructed them. Verse 25. Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord. He will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says I have no pleasure in you. Behold here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Not my will, but yours be done, in other words. Good for David. The ark belonged in the city, and David was entrusting himself to the Lord. Some might suggest that David's flight here is cowardly. I mean, it's possible to read this through a more negative lens given what we've got in the last few chapters, but I don't think that's the case. It seems better to see David as accepting a kind of inevitable defeat here and choosing for the good of his people and trusting the Lord to bring about his promises for the city in another way in his time. The climax of Absalom's conspiracy is another step in the story of God's chastisement of David. And in this step, we're starting to see David humbled. How happy was he when the ark entered Jerusalem so many chapters ago and how sad was he when the ark entered Jerusalem under these circumstances here notice the emotion David fled with tears verses 30 to 31 David wept at his child's death Tamar wept when she left the room after being ravaged David's house wept at the news of Amnon's murder and now we have more weeping verse 30 but David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went barefoot with his head covered and all the people who were with him covered their heads. And they went up weeping as they went. And then the news of the betrayal of one of David's close confidants, verse 31. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, oh Lord, here he's praying. Oh Lord, please turn the counsel." of Ahithophel into foolishness. Notice the timing. It is just in time that David leaves, verses 20, 32 to 37. In verse 32, we see David on the summit. And in verse 37, we see Absalom entering the city for what he expects will be an assault on David and his people. In other words, David is cresting the hill to safety just as Absalom is mounting his attack. The story is not over for David, of course. David has hopes that the Lord will show favor to him and bring him back. He remembers God's promise. He only hopes that he'll bring it about in part through him. He knows it'll bring about through his line. It's not a matter of if God will install a Davidic king on his throne, but whether it will be David still during his life. And David has made a number of strategic decisions to prepare for that possibility. He has left the ark in the city with the priests. He sent Hushai to be Absalom's servant to interfere with the council of Ahithophel. He's also to report to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests who in turn will relay messages to David through their children. And so the chapter ends. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city according to David's shrewd plan just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Well, thankfully, not only is the story not over for David, but it was not over for David's greater son when he was on that same hill, betrayed and weeping many years later. There are important similarities between David and Jesus that may appear obvious, but there are more important differences. Between the two, Jesus will be betrayed by one of his own as well, but the betrayal will not be tied in any fashion to a failure on the part of Jesus. Jesus will depart with his people, and his people pledging their allegiance and service to him as well, but his people will all desert him before it's over. And Jesus will make the same journey to the east over the Kidron, up the Mount of Olives, but Jesus will not crest that hill. He will be taken back. And thankfully, while David was not certain of God's plans in the days ahead, Jesus was. And so Jesus prayed on that hill, not my will, but yours. And his movement back into the city and then his movement up the cross was a more shrewd move than any move ever devised by a man or a king. So is he your king? Or is an Absalom your king? Have you sworn your allegiance to this Jesus who is chased out of his city and then hung on a cross? Hebrews chapter 13 is an important passage for us to consider here. Because if he is your king... These are his words to us, God's words to us. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify his people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that's to come. Jerusalem fell and it would fall again. The Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, will not fall and if you're with this king, then you bear his reproach with him outside the gate. And so our lives are a kind of mirror of Jesus' prayer and suffering in the garden. Is this your king? Swear your allegiance to him if he has not been your king, and follow him where he goes. How did Jesus feel? There's another chapter that we can go to in the Bible to answer that question. And it's Psalm 3. Turn there with me. Psalms are right in the middle of your Bible. This is a psalm that we've sung this morning so far already. Psalm 3 was penned by David about the very circumstance of his flight from Jerusalem. And this psalm is how God's betrayed king in his own words to his father, Felt, O oh Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Remember the cross? But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke again for the Lord sustained me. But I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. David entrusted himself to the Lord on his darkest and saddest day, and Jesus did the same. Peter Williams, a biblical scholar, said, I don't know of any national literature that says as much negative about the people it comes from as the Old Testament. It's good, isn't it? Thankfully, its power confounding answer to the problem of sin is even more surprising and true. A coup indeed. Let's pray. Father, we're shaken by the sneakiness of sin, by the power of sin, and by the effects of sin. And while we may believe what we believe about sin's darkness and our depravity because of what you tell us in scripture, we're shaken a bit today to witness what took place in this chapter by unsuspecting people, easily led. And so, Father, we thank you for the sword of your word which calls us to life from death. And for your spirit which gives us eyes to see. And for the word that we wield in the Christian life to fend off lies. Help us to be a faithful church whose allegiance is to the humble king Jesus who died on a cross. Whose symbol of power is itself a cross and not a chariot. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.